today I'm going to do something we've never done before. <laughs> Don't get too excited. Uh, <clears throat> I decided to pick a story to read in lieu of uh, Jason and I doing whatever we do. <clears throat> um, it's kind of long. <laughs> I'm wondering if I can... If I can do this all in one go, but, um, I think I brought up this story on the podcast briefly before I recommended the writing of Stephen Milhauser. Um, so I'm going to read a story of his called the dream of the consortium, which is basically about a shopping center that feels like it's kind of in like, could be like the fifties or the 70s or the 40s it's kind of hard to tell it's definitely sort of pre-computer technology i feel like but um in any case um and uh yeah this shopping mall just kind of takes on a life of its own and just keeps expanding in new and sort of surreal and uh astonishing ways so here goes nothing The purchase of the department store by the consortium filled us with uneasiness and secret hope. The department store was the last of the grand old emporiums in our city. From earliest childhood, we had ridden its aging escalators and wandered its faded departments. Our very idea of excess, of wonder, had been formed by its shelves of merchandise stretching into brown distances and rising through all twelve floors. In the glare of the new glass mall, The old stores had vanished one by one. Already our visits to the fading department store had become tinged with resignation and melancholy. Therefore, the purchase of the department store by the consortium was a sharp blow, even a devastation, but at the same time a solace. For hadn't we always known that our store was nothing but an awkward survivor, almost an embarrassment, in a certain sense an illusion? From the very first, it was said that the consortium planned to preserve the block-long building down to the last architectural detail, from the ornamental leaves and berries on its entrance columns to the quaint 19th-century marble fountain located in the far corner of the ground floor. It was rumored that the preserved building was to be turned into suites of offices, but immediately a counter-rumor arose, and now it was whispered that the consortium planned to revive the department store, to restore it to its former grandeur. Reports began to circulate the consortium had been purchasing other department stores in other cities, that factories and warehouses belonging to the consortium were springing up in remote places. To all such talk we listened with a certain reserve, for we no longer knew whether we really desired the rebirth of our department store, or longed only for its continuance in a perpetual brown twilight of decline. The opening was to take place in early spring. All that fall and winter we waited anxiously, while behind the large display windows, covered by white sheets, We heard the sounds of workmen's radios, of banging and sawing, of heavy loads scrapping across floors, and high above, in white skies of winter, the dark scaffolding seemed a complex, riddling work of destruction. We thought, without speaking of it, of a long, drawn-out childhood waiting, of the waiting that gradually becomes infected with anxiety, with unhappiness, 
as the dreamed-of day, drawing closer and closer, grows heavy with the burden of impossible desires. And the day came, a day like all others, a cool spring mid-morning, mid-April morning, and we were struck by surprise, before our eyes, but as if secretly, a grand department store had sprung up, a new emporium that seemed always to have been there, obscured by the shadow of our faded hopes. The new store rose nineteen stories into the bright blue day. In the broad plate-glass windows of the ground floor and the brilliant arched windows of the renovated granite façade, distorted reflections of red and brown office buildings seemed to tremble and shimmer. Despite the already opening doors, it was impossible not to pause at the display of windows for the consortium, as if, sensing our hesitation, had spared no expense in its effort to hold us there. One window showed a sandy beach with a tide line of seaweed and shells, and a strip of ocean with low waves breaking. The brilliantly realistic scene, with its bright blue sky and slow-drifting blue-shadowed clouds, its mannequin lifeguard on his white chair, its low waves breaking and scraping back, its distant lighthouse no larger than a thimble, was inhabited in the foreground by three slender mannequin women, sunning themselves in shiny silver bathing suits. Suddenly they sat up, revealing to spectators that they were real women pretending to be mannequins, and suddenly they lay down rigidly, making us wonder whether they were automated mannequins pretending to be real women. And the lifeguard refused to move, refused to give a sign, while seagulls that might have been real or might have been ingenious models strutted about in the sand. We smiled, we frowned thoughtfully, we granted the windows a certain originality, but at the same time we held back, we resisted all the temptation to be captivated. After all, it wasn't such shows we longed for, but something else entirely, something that carried us back to better times, when we still had hope. Something to be found only on the inside. Is it a wonder we hesitated? Slowly, a little nervously, we made our way through the great arch of the renovated entranceway, toward a row of new glass doors. Panes of glass slid silently apart by our approach and ushered us toward an inner row of antique revolving doors, slow and dark, which reminded us of our childhood and of old black-and-white movies, and led into the store itself. We found ourselves in an immense grand court that rose to the height of three floors, a broad aisle lined with mannequins dressed in bustles and petticoats, top hats and greatcoats, led to the restored fountain with its six sculptures representing honesty, industry, (laughs) invention, commerce, thrift, and the Republic. And we were pleased, we were pleased. Our fountain had never looked so splendid, but we were no fools. We understood perfectly this evocation of a vanished golden age, an age in which none of us entirely believed, was a calculated appeal to something dubious in our natures. And yet we admired the shrewdness of the appeal, even as we refused to be taken in by it. We saw at once the deliberately outmoded architectural style was mixed with aggressively modern touches, such as the glass elevators that rose along the openwork steel columns, and the grand stairway, composed not of marble, but of elegant curving escalators with transparent sides that led to a mezzanine, where customers were already drinking coffee at white metal tables that gave a view of the grand court below. 
the bold clash of the old-fashioned and the ultra-modern, each setting off the other, each designed to flatter us, to disarm our skepticism, was the most striking effect achieved by the consortium, whose deeper innovations and intentions revealed themselves gradually. With such thoughts, we ascended the escalators and the glass elevators. We moved warily into the departments, felt our way farther into the depths of the store. We, who have grown up with the old department stores, know that one of the secret pleasures is the sudden, violent transitions between departments, the startling juxtapositions, as in the kind of museum where a room full of old fire engines opens into a hall lined with glass cases containing owls, herons, and sandpipers. In the new department store, we saw the art of juxtaposition raised to bold and unexpected heights. With the exception of the Grand Court, which maintained the straight lines of the classical store, the departments of every floor had been designed to emerge suddenly and dramatically one from the other. So great an effort had been made by the interior designers to avoid clear vistas that many of the aisles were elaborately curved from a shadowy, meandering pathway of high boys, glass-fronted bookcases, and roll-top desks with pigeonholes. There burst into view a bright, unsettling place of long-legged mannequins with pink and green hair, wearing flashes of black satin and white lace. Here and there on glass counters, like mutilated corpses in a mad killer's basement, rose the lower halves of female bodies, upside down with legs in the air. As we made our way towards pairs of inverted legs in shiny black stockings, studded with tiny green jewels, suddenly we found ourselves wandering among frostless refrigerators, three-tier dishwashers, microwave ovens with digital displays. A bored-looking mannequin with short black hair, who seemed to have strayed from her department, leaned against a refrigerator and revealed the latest brassiere from Italy, consisting of a single gold thread that crossed her breasts in a straight line and fastened with a heart-shaped clasp in the back. Such transitions and confusions seemed to invite us to lose our way, despite the glass-covered maps posted everywhere. And we who wanted nothing better than to lose our way plunged deeper into the winding aisles, grateful for anything that increased our sense of the store's abundance, that satisfied our secret longing for an endless multiplication of departments. This quality of surprise, this continual attempt to banish monotony and elude a sense of constriction, was also evident in one of the consortium's more pleasing innovations. From time to time, in ends of turning aisles, we came to broad open areas where shoppers, overcome by fatigue, might rest before continuing on their way. Each area, designated as a plaza on the store maps, was designed in a distinct style. The floor of one such plaza was composed of real earth and grass. In the center rose a large oak tree with spreading branches, hung with Chinese lanterns, beneath which stood a scattering of slatted wooden benches. Another plaza was in the style of a foggy London street at night. Clouds of yellowish fog were pumped in by a fog machine, obscuring the lampposts and the mannequin bobby with his polished billy club. And on the upper floor, we discovered a Victorian parlor where we sank down in the plump armchairs under the gaslighting fixtures, among the oval photographs and whatnots, the marble statues. The artful plazas alone might have assured the success of the opening day, for already there were those among us who were eager to search all 19 floors for plazas in period designs. But other innovations also attracted our attention. 
we were struck by the variety of accessory services and entertainments located mainly on the four underground levels but also among the upper floors, such as the replicated shoeshine parlor, the old barber shop with its striped pole turning in, in a column of glass, the general store with its barrels of penny candy, the kinetoscope parlor on the eighth floor, the basement vaudeville theater with its four daily performances. We noted the many coffee shops, restaurants, and luncheonettes in scrupulously reproduced styles, the Pullman dining car, the 18th century New England inn, the whaling ship, the Pueblo village, the frontier saloon with swinging doors, and we discovered on each floor as we emerged from a maze of meandering departments, sudden places the purpose of which appeared to be cultural or educational, although we sensed that their real intention was to interrupt the inevitable boredom of displayed merchandise with refreshing surprises, surprises that permitted the customer to return with renewed vigor to the strenuous adventure of buying." Thus, the consortium had provided for our instruction a mannequin manufactory with a bearded sculptor at work on a clay figure before a live model in a setting of plaster casts, discarded hands and feet, and nearly finished fiberglass figures to which an assistant was adding glass eyes, wigs, and teeth, a meticulous replication of four galleries chosen from the Prado, the Uffizi, uh, Rijksmuseum and the Hermitage, with expert reproductions of all the paintings, frames, and statues. Three uniformed guides who explained to small groups of shoppers the history and technique of each work of art, and a reproduced portion of Egyptian pyramid with steps leading down to two burial chambers and a mortuary temple. Perhaps because of the size of the new department store, the large number of plazas and cultural areas, the services and entertainments, the sheer assault on our nervous systems of 19 floors and four basement levels of merchandise, we didn't at first take special note of the new departments scattered throughout the store in what we took to be a spirit of whimsy, of exuberant invention. Such was the department of streams, pools, and waterfalls located in a suddenly appearing alcove of the landscaping department, or on the 14th floor between men's hats and notions, the gloomy department of caves and tunnels, where dim fluorescent bulbs set in the cave walls shed a, a purplish glow over the rock formations. The price tags hung from nearly labeled stalactites, flowstone, cave coral, twisting helictites, helictites. One of the more mysterious departments lay beyond a soft brown world of night tables, dimly glowing lamps, pulled back bedspreads to playing flowery sheets, and four poster beds with arched canopies and heavy curtains. At the end of a narrow path of bunk beds filled with tigers and elephants, there suddenly appeared a high, whitish area that seemed to be under construction. Here and there on the floor stood broken marble columns and blocks of cracked stone. Against one wall was a flight of crumbling steps leading nowhere. At a shiny wooden counter in one corner sat a man in a gray suit and a maroon tie who seemed to await us. It was generally conceded that opening day had been a striking success. Oh, there were doubters among us, doubters who felt that the whole thing should be torn down and forgotten. But on the whole, we were inclined to be hopeful. To begin with, it was clear to us that the consortium had created a serious rival to the mall. 
And in a move obviously intended to broaden the eroding customer base of the traditional department store, the new Emporium directly challenged the deluxe specialty store by offering, in addition to its abundance of moderately priced goods, a wide range of high-priced specialty items, from sequined evening gowns to jeweled chess sets and imported jade palace dogs from the Imperial Palace of Beijing. We were attracted by the Grand Court and renovated Fountain, by the meandering aisles, by the clever replications, by the brashness and energy of the whole enterprise. And if we were inclined to reserve judgment, to withhold our approval, at the same time we were prepared to return. We returned with the sharp sense that we had barely begun to explore the store, that further explorations were in fact necessary if we were to penetrate its still elusive nature. Within days, we noticed that the store was already changing. Aisles here and there had been shifted slightly to make room for new merchandise. Departments that we did not recall seeing had sprung up or were about to open. It was said that plans were already underway for a penthouse and a floor beneath the four basement levels. And in what either a restless desire for expansion or a calculated effort to avoid tedium, small changes had been introduced to the design of individual departments. But it was above all the unusual departments, which we hadn't observed closely on opening day, that now drew our deepest attention. It quickly became evident that these were not witty or bizarre architectural elements designed to raise smiles of appreciation or frowns of curiosity, but were serious departments in their own right, intent on sales. By the end of the first week, the Department of Streams, Pools, and Waterfalls had been doing a brisk business, mostly from suburban customers with large properties who were able to select from a wide range of meticulously distinguished styles. Twelve models of brook or stream alone were on display, from the shallow rocky straight bed to the deep sandy winding bed. The caves and tunnels of the 14th floor were intended not only for privately owned hills and slopes, but also for cellars, attics, and playrooms. We returned to the high, whitish place that had appeared to be under construction, only to discover our error. In a thick catalog fastened to the counter by a chain, the sales clerk pointed to an array of ruins. All the architectural orders were being offered for sale, including carefully differentiated Greek Doric and Roman Doric, as well as three varieties of Corinthian capital, reproduced either in the original stone or, less expensively, in a synthetic equivalent and in various stages of ruin. For this was the department of classical ruins, from which one could also purchase friezes, broken pediments, crumbling arches, picturesque fragments of temples and mausoleums. At the back of the book were photographs of the Parthenon, the Colosseum, a Roman aqueduct, all in lush garden setting. Patiently, the sales clerk answered our skeptical, ardent questions. Everything in the catalog could be ordered. All parts were manufactured in repro factories and shipped direct. Only the other day, a Texan oilman had ordered the Colosseum for his ranch. The majority of orders came from corporations looking for innovative ideas in the landscaping line. A software company in New Mexico had recently ordered the baths of Car Caracalla and Had Hadrian's Villa for its 10-acre business park. 
and another firm in Southern California had ordered the entire Acropolis, sturdier than the original and guaranteed against pollution, set by the shore of an ornamental lake. The average customer was, was of course, more likely to want a ruined column for the hall or a backyard. We shook our heads. We grew thoughtful. We began to smile, but felt the edges of our smiles crumbling. And we entered more familiar departments, making our way through squash rackets, lacrosse sticks, and ping-pong tables, past TV VCR stands, audio-visual cabinets, and stereo rack systems with five-band graphic equalizers, past cookie jars shaped like smiling raccoons, and umbrellas with wooden handles shaped like ducks. Our sense of something odd and inexplicable about the new departments, something in the manner of a violation, gave way gradually to the conviction that it was all our own perception which was at fault. Far from being alien intrusions into a familiar world, the new departments were nothing but an extension of that world. For wasn't it in the nature of department stores to offer for sale everything under the sun? Wasn't the secret premise of such places that the whole world was a bazaar? The con consortium in a bold leap designed to counter the power of the mall, had simply extended the boundaries of the buyable. Nor was the idea of imitation or replication in the slightest degree alien in this world of synthetic materials and expensive reproductions of old-fashioned toys, famous paintings, and period furniture. Yet even then, in those early days of excitement and discovery, we failed to grasp the startling boldness of the new managers, despite hints and glimpses that left us a little breathless. It was precisely in those days, as we were feeling our way into the new store, that a harsh campaign was waged against it, originating from interests serving the specialty shops in the mall. The new store, it was charged, was poorly designed, filled with wasted space, and concerned more with atmosphere than with the efficient display of merchandise. The relationship of departments was confusing. The flashy new departments, by their very nature, could appeal only to a small number of customers. The plazas were tasteless, the architecture grotesque, the attractions absurd. Such easily refuted charges were no more than the familiar stuff of business rivalry, but concerns were voiced by ordinary citizens as well. Some argued that the store, despite its smattering of innovations, represented a return to the past. They accused the consortium of trading shamelessly on our nostalgia, and pointed in particular to the emphasis on imitation and replication in the designs of the plazas and cultural areas and even the merchandise itself. Others, acknowledging the attractiveness and success of the new venture, argued that the very completeness of that success was disturbing, since customers were often reluctant to tear themselves away from the delights of the renovated emporium and complained of a feeling of disappointment or irritation when they stepped back into the street. Perhaps inspired by these attacks, perhaps prompted by our own doubts and desires, we set out in the course of the next few weeks, to explore the new store in detail, to burrow into its depths, to permit none of its elements to escape our interrogation. Above the thirteenth floor, old-fashioned wood-paneled wood elevators with brass fittings, operated by polite men in dark red jackets and black pants, rose through the remaining six floors, and on every level, 
at two widely separated places. Elegant escalators trimmed in mahogany and brass rose up, while beside them, at an angle forming an X, stairfuls of customers floated to the floors below. We passed among dinner plates with pictures of blue windmills on them, footed glass dessert dishes filled with wax apricots, brightly colored ten-cup coffee makers with built-in digital clocks. We wandered past glittering arrays of laser printers and laptops, past brightly painted circus wagons, rolls of brown canvas, and bales of hay, through mazes of pale green bathtubs, onyx sinks set in oak cabinets, pink water closets carved with cherubs. In the depths of the toy department, which covers most of the 11th and 12th floors, there was a sub-department that sold full-size Ferris wheels, merry-go-rounds, and roller coasters. Nearby, we discovered an alcove of scale model cities, including precise wooden and plaster models of Victorian London, Nuremberg in the age of Durer, and Manhattan in 1925, each containing more than 60,000 separate pieces and capable of being assembled in a frame the size of a sandbox. In the bargain basement on the second underground level, there were alcoves and sub-departments selling imperfect mannequins, discarded display window props, and selected markdown items from more popular plazas and restaurants. Vistas painted on cardboard, cobblestones made of fiberglass, papier-mâché bricks. New departments appeared to be springing up everywhere, as if to keep pace with our desires and it was rumored that somewhere on the 14th or 15th floor, in a small department with a desk and a catalog, corporations with fabulous sums at their disposal could order full-size replicas of entire ancient cities. Such rumors lent excitement to our investigations, but at the same time they obscured our sense of things. They contaminated our perceptions, so that among us there rose a new skepticism, which itself interfered with the direct evidence of our senses and delayed for a while our deeper understanding of the store.
In the meantime, all but the harshest among us had begun to succumb to the new window displays, which were being carried to heights of daring and ingenuity unknown to us before. We heard that the consortium had hired from a gray, ice-bound city in eastern or northern Europe, where the pale sun shone for only two hours a day, a brooding and temperamental window display artist, providing him with a staff of mannequin makers, automaton masters, miniaturists, stage set designers, and window engineers, and promising him an unheard-of freedom in developing the display windows of the new store. Every day, one of the many plate glass windows on all four sides of the block-long building was covered with a red velvet curtain, which rose the following morning in a brand new display. One window showed a six-foot scale model of a 34-story hotel in which each of its more than 200 rooms was lit up in turn, revealing in each instance an exquisitely detailed scene performed by miniature automated figures. A little man was murdering a little woman with with repeated stabbings of a little bloody knife. A beautiful miniature lady seated at a vanity table with an ornate mirror was reading a letter and weeping hysterically. A young woman opened a closet and was embraced by a skeleton. In another display window, full-sized mobile mannequins in jeweled sunglasses and transparent silk bathing suits assumed elegant, languorous poses in a realistic jungle setting populated by live parrots and monkeys, as well as a disturbing lion that paced back and forth and only gradually revealed itself to be a machine. One of the more popular windows was a marionette theater in which plays with diverse settings, a Mississippi paddle steamer, a Turkish harem, a Parisian fashion show stalked by a strangler, were performed by marionettes whose costumes had been designed by a celebrated designer. Despite such allusions to the sale of merchandise, many of the windows reveled in their freedom and quickly developed in a purely artist in purely artistic directions a striking window of this kind began as a conventional display of animated mannequins in transparent raincoats and bikini underwear and grew swiftly into a series of variations on the theme of rain a rain machine a wind machine mirrors and colored lights combined to form shifting patterns of windswept rain as if the display artist were engaged in the exploration of a new art, an art of rain. Yet even such windows, which seemed to disdain the vulgar sale of merchandise and aspire to higher things, tantalized us by their very aloofness and made us search for secret relations that continued to elude us. It wasn't until the end of the third or fourth week, when the criticisms had diminished to a mere whisper, when even the doubters had to admit that the new store had about it an air of solidity and permanence, that we at last permitted ourselves to give way entirely to the lure of the new emporium, to abandon ourselves to the meandering aisles, the hidden alcoves. We applauded the adventurous window displays, welcomed the newest and most daring departments, wandered the floors delighting in every shift and change, in the always varied rhythms of the interior design. Departments of steel radial tires, salted nuts, snow blowers, shower curtains printed with reproductions of famous Impressionist paintings, and triple-track windows gave way to departments of Moorish courtyards, volcanoes, Aztec temples. 
These new and unconventional departments formed no pattern of distribution, but as we ascended escalators and strode through swiftly changing scenes, it came over us that that the distinction between old and new, familiar and unfamiliar, was our own. The store itself made no such distinction, but simply offered its wide-ranging merchandise for sale. Was there really, after all, so great a difference between a wristwatch and a Roman villa? In the new emporium, with its noble and feverish desire to surpass its rivals and recapture, in the last decade of the 20th century, the vanished glory of the great department stores, you could purchase quartz heaters, power mowers, Venetian palazzi, electric pencil sharpeners, Scottish castles, cordless phones with 10-channel auto-scan, flying buttresses, mulching tractors, neolithic villages, aluminum siding, the palace of Sargon II, the Erie Canal, wax museums, submersible sub-pumps, Sumerian ziggurats, islands with palm trees and crashing surf, ancient Troy, motorized wheelchairs, Viking burial mounds, the great mosque of Cordoba, lagoons, sphinxes, exercycles, black leather recliners, upper Paleolithic caves with drawings of bison, three-ring circuses, the Colossus of Rhodes, bow tree shrines, Coca-Cola bottling plants, mutoscopes, zoom lenses, cosbas, African diamond mines, Benedictine monasteries, ice cream makers, the Library of Alexandria, (laughs) opera theaters, five-speed drill presses, film noir stage sets, Deserts with mirages, cotton gins, henins, steaming square miles of Amazon jungle, old piers with seagulls. In remote factories located in large, underpopulated states, teams of workers trained in secret workshops, taught by rigorous experts, were producing replicas so skillful that the originals had begun to seem a little flawed, a little faded and unconvincing. It was said that in a department on the 15th or 16th floor, near shades and drapes, in a small room resembling a travel agency, with maps on the walls and tooled desks heaped with brochures, the heads of four major hotel chains, angered by the scandalous loss of billions of dollars each year to foreign countries through tourism, were discussing plans to purchase the exact replication of a small European country— with its lakes and mountains, its quaint villages with cobblestone streets and carved door panels, its railroads and postage stamps, for placement in central Texas or western Montana. The hotel executives believed that Americans would enjoy the convenience of visiting Europe directly by car or bus. The pleasure of the trip would be enhanced by the knowledge that, whenever the traveler grew bored or lonely, as so often happened in foreign countries, he could hop in his car and drive across the simulated border into America itself. The brashness of the plan filled us with a kind of nervous exhilaration. Similar deals, we began to realize, were taking place in departments on other floors. We imagined mountain ranges of artificial snow, sparkling false lakes, replicated forests, nightingales, thunderstorms. We dreamed of Florence rising stone by stone from a desert in Arizona. We saw in the depths of China the slow and meticulous reconstruction of New England. 
with its sugar maples and old brick factories, its exact pattern of rooftops, stoplights, leaf shade, riverbanks, and on each riverbank, the precise shaft of sunlight slanting through the pines onto a picnic table trembling with sun and shade. There was no longer any need to verify such rumors and suspicions, for we sensed in ourselves a secret sympathy with the store, a profound intuition of its mysteries. The consortium was determined to satisfy the buyer's secret desire, to appropriate the world, to possess it entirely. Countless factories were turning out precise pieces of geography and history, multiplying them relentlessly. In some department, half hidden by shelves of merchandise, plans were no doubt underway for duplicating and selling still larger pieces of real estate. The Mediterranean shore with its famous beaches and resorts. The Black Sea, ancient Persia. If we wandered here long enough, we would find departments so audacious that to imagine them clearly would be, would be to suffer harm, as from the blow of a hammer. With such visions and premonitions swirling within, we pressed to the utmost ends of the store, searching out unseen corners, feverishly ascending and descending a series of zigzag escalators, passing through departments we had seen so quickly that they already looked unfamiliar. It was on one of these feverish journeys that we descended past the lowest of the subterranean levels to a new level still under construction. In a thick darkness lit here and there by greenish lights, tunnels braced with heavy posts stretched in every direction. Working, workers wearing helmets with lights on them raised their glistening arms to swing pickaxes against rock faces. Even in this raw region of barely imagined departments, men in neat suits were measuring distances with metallic tape measurers, marking the ground with chalk. A freestanding door lay against a rocky wall beside an opening, and a man in a necktie ushered us inside. The department was almost black, lit by a reddish glow. Here and there, men and women moved with strangely formal gestures, as if they were engaged in a mysterious dance. Women of intolerable beauty turned their faces toward us slowly, with sad smiles. We had the sensation of having entered some dark and melancholy dream. Only gradually did we realize that the figures were on display. The art of mobile holography, a salesman was saying, was on the verge of another breakthrough. These images, under carefully controlled conditions, were able to stimulate in the spectator a sensation of touch and to give the illusion of life itself. Slowly, a demon-eyed woman glided toward us. As she came closer, we felt, in our fingertips, a faint tingle or tickle. She continued to smile vaguely at us as we snatched away our hands. We no longer resist it. We no longer try to resist it, the new emporium. These dangerous descents, these dubious wanderings, tug at us even in our sleep. New departments spring up almost daily. Sales records are continually surpassed. From the receiving rooms comes an unbroken rumble of arriving goods. There is talk of four new upper stories, of deeper excavations, of the purchase of a neighboring commercial building that will be joined to the old building by three glassed-in bridges. Such rumors, however false, strike us as essentially true. In this we are merely acknowledging the power of the new store, the thoroughness of its triumph, 
For as the departments multiply, as the store grows and invents itself daily, so it expands within our minds until eventually everything else is pressed flat against our skulls. Indeed, it is not always pleasant to leave the new emporium. And as we glance irritably at our watches, we search for excuses to linger among the winding aisles and sudden alcoves, to delay our departure a little. But at last, we must step through the parting glass doors, bewildered to find ourselves in sunlight. Across from us, the buildings, dark rose in hue, lie in late afternoon shadow. In the black plate glass windows, opposite, we see the bright green and white reflection of a passing bus, through which a row of half-closed blinds is visible. Overhead, the avenue-wide strip of sky is brilliant blue. As we hurry along the sidewalk, we have the absurd sensation that we have entered still another department, composed of ingeniously lifelike streets, with artful shadows and reflections, that our destinations lie in a far corner of the same department, that we are condemned to hurry forever through these artificial halls, bright with late afternoon light, in search of a way out. So that's the story. Um, hope you liked it. I hope I read it all right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems obvious to me how this this could possibly connect with uh, the holiday season. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I might try this with another story again when I need to do something sort of solo-ish since Jason and I have, uh, anyway, I've explained it, but yeah, we're, you know, we're basically doing one episode a week actually together, um, while I'm, uh, <laughs> on the other side of the earth from him. And, uh, but I still want to put something out in the, in the latter half of the week. So, um, I don't know. It'll be a surprise to you and me. What, what comes next? I guess I can say go to heatdeathpod.com. You can go to Twitter and find heatdeathpod there. Um, write to us, etc. We also have a patreon.com slash heatdeathpod. Just trying to break even over there. And... Yeah, it's uh, it's Christmas Eve, um, in America at least. Uh, Timestamp one eighteen p.m., December twenty fourth, twenty twenty one. Year of our Lord, Milhauser. All right, see you on the flippity flop.
first voice recording was made in 1860. It was a 10-second fragment of the French folk song Au Claire de la Lune recorded by inventor Edward Leon Scott de Martinville. But who will make the final voice recording and when? What will it be? Who will hear it?